John chapter 4. And if you don't have a Bible, we've got red ones um, underneath your seat in front of you or back on the welcome table. And if you are going to use a red Bible, John chapter 4 is on page 518. We are, like I said earlier, um, concluding um, our series on the rhythms of grace. And we spent the first week talking about uh, ways in which our daily routines, our, our daily rhythms of life, shape us into a particular kind of person. Um, you know, the, the kinds of shows that we watch or news that we hear or patterns that we go throughout throughout the day shape us. And last week, we looked at how the pattern of gathering together as God's people and then being scattered as God's people also shape who we are as a community and shape our mission. This morning, we're looking at the sacred rhythms or the rhythms that we participate in as we come together on Sunday morning and worship. And we're looking at this passage in John 4 because I think that this passage perhaps is the most um, informative passage, uh, the most informative teaching that Jesus gives us on the essence of worship. Uh, we'll see in, in this uh, brief section what Jesus has to say to us about what does it mean to come and worship God. Um, and so we're going to read this and, and um, pray that the Lord would open up our understanding to God's word. Just some context for you. Jesus is traveling through the region of Samaria with his disciples, and he's traveling during a hot uh, afternoon, and so he takes a break at a well just outside of the village in this town in Samaria. And he sends his disciples on ahead, but at the well is this woman, the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman. And he asks her for some water, and they have a conversation, and it's in this conversation um, that Jesus uh, exposes in her uh, the fact that she is, well, she's worshiping something that's not God. And it's in this conversation that we read this passage that talks about worship. So we're going to start at verse 19 after um, Jesus has exposed this truth into her life and she responds with this question. So the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, uh, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know, and we worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you, Am he? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray now through your word and in your spirit that you would open up our understanding and draw us nearer to you and comprehend what it is that you desire from us. 
In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So we're talking about worship. And uh, whenever we talk about worship, there's bound to be discussions about what is the right way to worship. Uh, There's bound to be conversations about should we worship like this or should we worship like that? Should we sing this kind of song or that kind of song? Should we um, stand up or sit down? Should we be sitting in a a room like this or should we be sitting around the stage? There's all these questions about what is the right way to worship. And actually, this woman is asking a question just like that. Jesus, you seem to be a prophet. Can I ask you a question about worship? What's the right way for me to worship? Should I worship you on this mountain in Samaria or should I worship in Jerusalem at Mount Zion? That's the question. What is the right way to worship? And and in Jesus' response, he shows us the essence of worship. He's not going to answer every question that we have about worship, but he is going to boil it down to the essence of worship. And as we look at this passage, we're going to see uh, three things. We're going to see what it is that the Father wants from us. We're going to see what should that look like. And then we're going to see how that's even possible for us. So we're going to see what does the Father want from us in worship? What should that look like? How is that even possible for us? So first, what is the Father wanting from us? We see in verse 23 that the Father is wanting people to worship him. He's seeking people to worship him. That's his longing. That's what he wants from us, for us to come and worship him. And that might not sound um, you know, startling to you, Uh, if you've grown up in the church for a lot of your life. But um, the fact that this divine being is wanting worship, that that should be startling. But he's he's not looking for worship in the sense that there's something lacking in him that we come and fill up for him. He's not like you and I who are hungry for attention, and when we lack attention, we desire it. That's not what this means. Jesus is saying that the Father is looking for people to calibrate their hearts toward him. That's the Father's desire, is that our hearts would be calibrated toward him, that we would come and worship him. We would worship him alone. A few weeks ago, when we started in our series on Genesis, back in August, We looked at creation, the very first story in the Bible, and we saw how God made everything in the beginning, heavens and earth and everything in them, including human beings, male and female. He created them, and he placed them in the garden. And we noted that the role or the job that Adam and Eve had in the garden, and therefore the job and responsibility that comes upon all of us, was to to work and keep the land. And we noted how working and keeping only ever show up in the rest of the Bible in the context of worship in the temple. And so creation, in creation, God made man and woman. He made human beings to do one thing chiefly, to worship God. That's why he created us, to worship him, to glorify him with our lives, to have our hearts calibrated toward 
him. Even in our call to worship this morning from Psalm 95, we read that we are to come into his presence and praise him, to bow down before him. Why? Because he is a Lord above all the gods. He is a great king, and there's nothing else that compares to him. He created the universe. He holds it all together in his hands, even you and me. We were created to come and worship God. But we know, not only from continuing our sermon series through Genesis, but in our daily lives, that that's just not true of us. That there are other things that get in our way and, and get in our way from worshiping God. Even the story of the fall of man into sin can be described in these worship categories. Because although mankind was made to worship God, in the fall, we see people exchanging worship of God with the worship of something else, with obedience towards something or someone else. This is really the root of sin, is exchanging this glory for God for glorying in something less than God, in someone or something smaller than God. And when I say that we worship things other than God, I, I don't necessarily mean that we engage in these rituals and practices towards objects of worship. I mean, there are places in the world today where people do come and, and do rituals towards objects uh, of people and things that aren't the God of the universe. But I, I'm talking about worship in the sense of ascribing ultimate value onto something or someone other than God. To put our hope and trust into someone or something else that we believe this thing will satisfy us. This thing will quench the deepest thirst of our soul. In the context, Jesus is talking to this woman who has gone from relationship to relationship, husband after husband, longing for a sense of companionship. Even the person that she's with in this story is not her husband. Jesus says, you are worshiping something other than the Father. John Calvin, one of the, the great Protestant reformers, talks about the condition of the human heart being a, a factory that produces idols. That we go from thing after thing longing for fulfillment. Longing for our desires to be met. Um, I'm, I'm reading through the Harry Potter books right now. And if you've never read through those, I, I highly recommend them. They're fantastic. But if you, uh, if you haven't read them, maybe you've seen the movie. Um, there's a scene in the first story where Harry stumbles upon this secret room. And in this room, there's a mirror. And it's a magical mirror. It's called the Mirror of Erised. And when someone stands in front of that mirror, they see in the reflection their deepest desires. And so when Harry stands in front of the mirror, he sees his parents, his mom and his dad and his family. Because Harry's mom and dad, back when Harry was one years old, they sacrificed their life in protection of him. He's always longed for this sense of family. 
So that's what he sees in the mirror. His buddy, Ron, he stands in front of the mirror, and, and Ron sees that he is the, the star Quidditch player, you know, the, the game that they play on the broomsticks. He sees that he's the, the top student in his class, the head boy at the school, because Ron has four older brothers who have far exceeded expectations, and they were the top students, and they were the star athletes, and they were the best in their class, and Ron has always lived in the shadows of his older brother, and so his, his desire is that he would be welcomed and accepted and approved because of his achievements in life. This mirror shows us our deepest longings and desires. Dumbledore, the, the headmaster, says that the most content person in all of the world would stand in front of the mirror and see only himself. Friends, I wonder if you would stand in front of that mirror, what would you see? What is it that you long for deep within your soul? That if only you had that, well, then you'd be happy and your life would be abundant and you would be full of joy. What is it? What the Father wants from us is that we would find him satisfying, that we would find him of ultimate value, that we would trust in him for our lives. This is what the Father wants from us that we would worship him above all things, exclusively him. So what does that look like? What, what should that look like from us? Well, Jesus says two times in verse 23 and in verse 24 that the kind of worshiper that the Father wants is the one who comes and worships in spirit and in truth. In spirit and in truth. What does that mean? To worship him in spirit. Um, you know, you might think that when the Bible talks about spirit, he's talking about uh, this sort of emotional, sort of um, intangible feeling. And to worship then in spirit is to, is to come and worship in the sense of authenticness and genuineness and sort of true to self. And Sometimes we oppose spirit with the mind, and so we say, like, the spirit is more of this emotionally driven thing as opposed to a more intellectually driven way. And so some churches create their worship experience in, in, in a way to cultivate an emotional response, whether that's through the song selection or, or the way that the lighting and the room is sort of laid out. And so the, the goal of those moments is to elicit this emotional response, this feel-good, inspirational feeling in which you connect with God. Is that what Jesus is saying? That to worship God, we have to worship in spirit, in this emotional way. I think to talk about spirit in an emotional way like that, I think is doing an injustice to the way that Jesus talks about the spirit. Because when Jesus talks about the spirit, especially in the Gospel of John, he's talking about two things. He's talking about both the spirit within us, this sort of sense of being or this sense of soul, and he's talking about the Holy Spirit that comes and fills us and regenerates us, gives us new life, and awakens us to the truth of the Gospel. 
And when we put these together, we see that to worship God in spirit is to worship God from this inner depth of our heart. Not necessarily the seed of our emotions, although that's part of it, but this sense of our affections, our desires, like, like a, a compass that needs to be calibrated to true north. Our hearts are to be calibrated towards God. And this is the work not only of God's spirit working in us, but that we cultivate that from within as well. To worship God in spirit is to worship him from the depths of our heart. Yes, that includes our emotions. But, but it, deeper than that, it's our affections. What is it that we're longing for? When we gather for worship, sometimes we like to talk about preparing our hearts for worship. And, and that's not like trying to get the clutter and stress out. That's asking, Lord, would you calibrate my heart in this moment? Lord, would you bring to mind the sin that I need to be working on through your grace? And that's asking, Lord, would you, would you get rid of distractions so that this morning I can be whole before you? So let's prepare our hearts for worship because we are to come and worship from the depths of our heart in spirit. But then he also says we are to worship him in truth. What does that mean? Uh, maybe you've gone to a church in the past, or maybe you're familiar with a church now that, that emphasizes uh, doctrine, that emphasizes the role of teaching um, on a Sunday morning. And, and, you know, there's nothing wrong with that, but to emphasize truth over something else, well, Jesus is saying there's more to it. You know, there's a a church in Columbus that I'm familiar with and I've got friends that are a part of it, that uh, their Sunday morning worship service, they've got 30 minutes of singing and then they pause and break for about 30 minutes and then they all come back together and have an hour and a half of a straight lecture. That's their worship service. And they get together because for them to worship is to be worshiping in truth. Yes, in spirit, but it's the truth of God's word preached that is what saves us. Maybe that's been some of your experiences in the past. But is that how Jesus is talking about truth? In, in the Gospel of John, when Jesus talks about truth, he's talking about not just what's right versus wrong, but he's talking about this, the, the, this revelation of God's plan to bring people back to himself. That's truth in the Gospel of John. And so in the beginning, we see grace and truth came through Jesus. So Jesus reveals this plan of how God is going to bring us back to him. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The way that Jesus says uh, truth is, is God's plan to bring people back to himself. And so to worship in truth is to worship God in the way in which he has revealed that he's going to bring people back to himself. If you think of the, the book of Leviticus in the Old Testament, it's a hard book to read through. But that book is, is God's plan for his people to come and worship him. 
at that time in the history of God's redemption, yes. But it's a plan, it's a instructions, it's regulations that show God's people this is the way God is going to bring people back to himself. This is the way God wants to be worshipped. And so for Jesus to say we are to worship in truth is to worship him in accordance with the way God has revealed he's drawing people to himself. We are to worship God in spirit and in truth. I find it interesting that in a question of what's the right way to worship, Jesus does not even talk about sing this kind of song, pray this kind of prayer, do sacraments in this way, give your sermons like that. He doesn't talk about those things. There are other parts of God's word that enlighten our understanding of that. But when someone asks Jesus, how are we to worship? He says, worship God in spirit and truth. That's the essence. That's the most important thing. Come to him from the depths of your heart and in accordance with how he is bringing his people back to himself. I know that because of our church backgrounds and experiences, we all have different preferences and styles that we prefer. Like one of the beauties of being part of a church plant is that everyone in here has some other kind of background that they're bringing to the table. It's beautiful and it's hard because it's only a matter of time that one person's preference is going to butt up against another person's preference. I know from my own background, like I come from a more traditional, more emphasis on the truth. But I know other people come from an emphasis more on the spirit, more of that sort of free flow. Jesus doesn't say, worship God either in spirit or truth. He says, worship God in both. Worship him in spirit and in truth. We have to do both. I think we're trying to do both. And what that means for all of us in this room is that sometimes for those of us who lean more on the truth side, we're going to be nudged outside of our comfort zone to worship in some kind of spirit way that we're not familiar with. And for others of us on the worship him in spirit, we're going to need to be nudged a little bit closer to worshiping in truth. It's going to be uncomfortable for everyone, and that's okay. I really believe that it's in those moments of, of being uncomfortable that God seems to grow us, that God seems to challenge us on our preconceived notions, that, that God sort of presses on us and says, hey, were you worshiping according to how I want you to worship, or were you worshiping me according to how you wanted to worship? It's in those moments that God says, I'm still here. You can worship me in this way, too. You can grow in that way. We're all going to be nudged a little bit, and that's okay. God uses those times of discomfort to grow us and depend on him more. So that's what it's supposed to look like for us. Finally, we have to ask, how do we do it? How is it even possible for us to do that? Like I said, it is hard. We're going to have problems. We're going to run into issues. 
How is it possible? Whenever we, whenever we look at Scripture, and this is, this is a true principle that you can apply to, to any passage you're reading. Whenever we look at God's Word, we should really ask two questions. These are the two questions. One, where am I failing to live up to what this word is calling me to? Where in my life is there a gap between how I'm living now and the way that God wants me to live as revealed in this passage? That's a great question to ask. The second question, though, is is similar. Where in this passage is God promising to do for me what I can't do? Where in this passage is God promising to fulfill the very thing that this passage says is lacking in me? So where is there a gap, and where does God promise to fill it? When we look at this passage, when we ask the first question, where is the gap? Well, it's right there. The Father is looking for people to worship him exclusively and perfectly exclusively above all other things and perfectly in spirit and in truth. And let's be honest, that's just not true of us. Even in our best endeavors, we fail. We worship other people and relationships. We desire and long for other things in this world to satisfy us that aren't God himself. And we have these preferences for how we're supposed to worship him, emphasizing one or the other, spirit or truth. We aren't worshiping God exclusively or perfectly. But this passage also shows us God's provision, that that God can do the thing that he is demanding of us. There's one person in this story who has worshiped the Father exclusively and perfectly. One person, one person in all of human history has done this, and it's Jesus, the Messiah, the the, the God-man who has come down to earth, fully God and fully man. He is the only one in all of human history who has put the will of God, his Father, above all others. He is the only one in history who completely obeyed and worshiped the Father. And he's the only one who perfectly has worshiped out of his own heart, the fullness of his heart. He is truth embodied, and so he worships God in truth because it is through him that God is bringing people back to himself. Jesus is the only one who has done the very thing that the Father is searching for. So what does that mean for us? It means that if we trust in Jesus, if we have faith in Jesus and are united to him, that that our worship becomes his own and that he takes up our worship and he makes it perfect. Have you ever wondered why when Christians pray, we conclude the prayer in the name of Jesus, amen, or in the name of your son, Amen. What does that mean to pray in the name of Jesus? It means that when we pray, we believe that Jesus hears our prayer, makes it his own, 
turns to his father and offers it to him on our behalf. And so when we pray in the name of Jesus, the father hears us. Not because we are great, because he is great. And so when we worship in the name of Jesus, when we worship united to Jesus through faith, our feeble attempts at getting it right, our, our stumbling around between song selections and seat arrangements, whatever it is, when we worship in the name of Jesus, he takes it upon himself. He steps in and says, I'll be the worship leader. He comes in and says, I'll join the congregation with my brothers and sisters. Their worship will become my worship. And I'll take their worship and I'll make it perfect. I'll make it exclusively on the Father. And because he is with us in worship, our worship is accepted. Our worship is delighted in. That when we can come into his presence and know with full assurance that God is here and has received us. Not because we figured out the right way to do worship, but because we come in the name of Jesus. That is what God is wanting from us. Worship him in his son. Now I need to talk a little bit about what we do on Sundays. That's what I promised we would talk about in these Rhythms of Grace series. I want to just close with three comments about what we do on Sunday morning. First, our Sunday sacred rhythms are to be saturated with the Word of God. Because it's in the Word of God that we lift up and behold the glory of Jesus. We, we lift up and see how God has redeemed us through his Son. And so we are going to be saturated with God's word. Whether that's from the call to worship or confession or assurance or the benediction or preaching, it is going to be saturated with God's word. Even the songs that we choose to sing are going to be saturated with God's word so that when we come together, we hear, we speak, we see, we sing God's word. Second, the way that we do our sacred rhythms is that we are going to be congregational in our participation. What I mean by that is we are coming together. Psalm 95 says, let us come. It is a corporate event. It is not for me to do. It's not for Rob to do. It is all together coming in worship. And so we have call and responses because you are not just a consumer or participant or, or sort of an audience member, but that you have a part to play as well. And so we join together with our voices and participate together in worship. That's why we've got lights on, so we can see one another. That's why we've got words on the screen so that we can all lift up our voices together and sing together. That's why the songs that we sing are you know, are in English. So we want to sing together. So we're going to be congregational. And then finally, our worship, our sacred rhythms will be habit-forming. 
we are going to do the things that we do again and again and again so that they create habits within us. There's this great commercial on TV right now, um, a Taco Bell commercial, where there's a, a guy and a girl out on a bonfire on the beach, and they sort of lock eyes, and they go into the water, and they start dancing. And sort of they, they're coming close to embrace and to kiss, and then a, a buoy falls over, and there's a bell that rings, and the, the lady sort of steps back, and she says, I want Taco Bell, because that's what the Taco Bell ding is. She's got this habit in her head that when she hears that ding, she wants Taco Bell. We're going to do things over and over and over and over again so that we create these soul rhythms that, that tune us into these habits of coming into God's presence and worshiping him. And there's just two examples of that. We always confess our sin and give a word of assurance right by each other, always, so that when you, Monday through Saturday, feel the weight of your own sin, and you feel like, God, I don't deserve your love. God, I'm such a terrible person. God, I messed up so bad. So that you know, when you confess your sin, what's the next thing you should do? Assure yourself of God's forgiveness. We do that every week. Confess your sin, hear his forgiveness. And the second thing is, the songs that we sing, we'll sing them over and over again to teach us the truth of God's love, to teach us again and again so that they get stuck in our minds and our hearts so that when we're facing something at work or at home, we can sing those songs to ourselves and remind ourselves of God's love for us. We want everything that we do on Sunday morning to be habit-forming. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We thank you that you've gathered us in your presence. We thank you that you've perfected our worship through your son, that you've made us qualified to be in your presence through his blood. Lord, that you hear us when we pray and you see us when we worship. We do pray that these, these actions, these songs, these prayers, these things that we do on Sunday would not just be emotions that we go through, stuck in our head, but that they would fall down deep in our heart. Lord, that we would come to you from the depths of our heart, on the foundation of your truth, and so worship you. We pray for that, Lord, that your spirit would stir within us, draw us near to you. In Jesus' name we do pray, amen.